Hi, everybody who's watching. Um, I'm here with Philip Goff, who's a professor of philosophy at Durham University in the UK. And he is famously a panpsychist, which is a particular position in philosophy of mind, um, which in your book, you say, has been kind of like fringe historically, but seems to be kind of growing more, more recently. And we're going to be talking about what that is today, um, perhaps covering a few thing, a few of the topics in philosophy of mind. So if you're not familiar, hopefully we'll be able to bring you along. And if you're a bit more advanced or, um, uh, I mean, a lot of, uh, so, some of you in the audience are doing like PhDs in philosophy and stuff as well. Um, hopefully there'll also be some good stuff for you in there as we go a bit more in depth on some of the specific things too. Um, is there anything else you want to say about yourself and what you do um, before uh, getting into the content of the book? Not necessarily. You can go straight through it if you want. Yeah, um, no problem. Happy to be here. Um, so the book that you've written at like a popular level is uh, Galileo's Error, which is sort of, I guess, an introduction to philosophy of mind, and it's touching on a few other concepts as well. And you introduce the book around the theme that what Galileo does um, in, in his cultural context is he kind of introduces this idea of natural theology, like nature is written in God's language, and that language is mathematics. And I guess you offer, you say that that's been throughout the book, that's been very useful, but there's this, there's this gap in it fundamentally. Do you want to start to kind of paint the picture of what it is that Galileo did, what, what it is to describe the universe mathematically and how that um, might have differed from the ways that people thought about things before then? Yeah, natural philosophy rather than natural theology is, I mean, so I guess what we, what we now call science was originally called natural philosophy. Um, and I mean, I suppose, yeah, we forget that there's a sort of philosophy behind science. And this was primarily set up by Galileo. So well, bef before Galileo, to get a bit of background, people following Aristotle thought the world was filled with qualities. So there's kind of colors on the surfaces of objects, like this, you know, this blue and yellow on the surface of this cup, or the smells floating through the air, or tastes actually inside food. And Galileo wanted science to be totally mathematical. He wanted to be able to exhaustively describe the physical world in mathematics but the problem he envisaged was you can't capture these kinds of qualities in the purely quantitative vocabulary of mathematics you can't capture the blueness of the sky in an equation or the um, spiciness of the paprika so he got around this by proposing a radically new philosophical theory of reality so he was you know, a genius philosopher as well as a great experimental scientist. And according to this new theory, the qualities aren't really out there in the world as they seem to be. They're rather in the consciousness of the observer. So the, the blueness and yellowness on my Batman cup isn't really on the surface of the cup. It's in the consciousness of me or you or the audience looking at it, right? There's no color out there on the cup. And the spiciness isn't really in the paprika. It's in the um, conscious observer who's eating it. So he like strips the world of these qualities 
And the benefit of that is once he's done that, all that's left are purely quantitative features like size and shape, location, motion, properties that can be captured in mathematical geometry. So this is the start of mathematical physics. But the whole project was premised on a sort of division in nature. Galileo divides the world into two domains, the quantitative physical world with its uh, quantitative mathematical properties that we can capture in mathematical language and consciousness with its qualities, which he took with its colors, its sounds, its smells, its tastes, which he saw to be outside of the domain of science in the soul sort of, although he had a more, a conception of the soul closer to Aristotle and Plato more, he called it the animated body. So there's a sort of special immaterial animation in the body where these qualities of consciousness were. So, so this is the start of mathematical physics, but the whole project is premised on putting consciousness outside of the domain of science, the qualities of consciousness. Because once you've done that, we can just describe everything else in mathematics. It was never supposed to be you know, a complete picture of reality. The whole thing was premised on putting consciousness outside. So you know, that's gone really well, and we're now thinking, oh my God, that's, that's the whole story. But of course, we now want a science of consciousness. Um, we've now got this problem of explaining consciousness in the terms of physical science. I think Galileo would say, well, of course you can't do that. I designed physical science to exclude consciousness. That's the whole point. So I think, I would never say we can't have a science of consciousness, but I think if we want to bring consciousness into the scientific story, we have to rethink what science is because our, our current scientific paradigm was explicitly designed to exclude consciousness. So would it be fair to say that one of these sort of um, maybe like meta points, these like overarching themes that you're trying to bring out might be this idea that because we have such powerful technology that seems to come from the sciences that we might have like a kind of ideological chauvinism or something where we, you know, we look back at um, Aristotelianism or we look back at like the scholastics and we think sympathies and antipathies and, uh, you know, nature abhors a vacuum or whatever. That just sounds a bit crazy to me. Um, I, I'm not going to entertain those ideas because we've got science, but then actually it might be that, that, we've not got a complete picture ourselves and there needs to be another sort of paradigmatic shift in order to answer some fundamental questions about consciousness or maybe quantum stuff in physics or, or who knows what else. Would that be fair to say that's kind of a meta point and then you get into the panpsychism of mind uh, alongside alongside that critique or, or am I imposing that on you? Yeah, no, I think that's right. So something clearly went very right with what Galileo did. It was certain, you know, it's it's gone really well, this mathemati mathematization of science and it's led to extraordinary technology. I think most people, a lot of people are drawing the wrong lessons from that. They're saying, it's gone really well, that's everything. And that, you know, people like that sort of security that we know how to do it now. We haven't got all the answers, but we know how to get them. Not like those fools stuck in the past or these silly, you know, religious people or something. Um, 
But I think that's the wrong. I, I, I think the reason it's been so successful is because it, it, it was focused on a very narrow, specific task, um, okay. a task that explicitly excluded consciousness. So it's almost like, you know, Galileo said, just focus on this, just, you know, put consciousness on one side so you can just focus on what you can capture mathematically. That's gone really well. But the fact that it's gone well, whilst it ignores consciousness doesn't mean it's going to go well once once we bring consciousness back into the story. So, yeah, so I think, like, I spend a lot of time with fiddly arguments as a philosopher. My academic book is full of these technical arguments and, you know, that you need a PhD to sort of understand what the hell I'm talking about. But, I, I mean, I sort of think they hardly ever can convince anyone, really. <laughs> what convinces people is sort of a big, big picture story of, like, right. this historical narrative of the look at the success of science yeah and so you know i'm trying to get people to think that that there may be a different way of looking at that um uh is the sort of softening up i guess before we get i mean none of this yeah. this doesn't get to the this doesn't prove anything this doesn't prove any theory of consciousness yeah what it what it shows i think is undermines this idea that physical science will definitely solve the problem of consciousness right. uh this historical inference on the success of science that's what it's trying to undermine so so one of the um first sort of positions in philosophy of mind that you start to talk about is i suppose once we've got this kind of third person set of mathematical descriptions about the world out there then we've also got this kind of um first person stance in our in ourselves and in reconciling the two um, we might come to a position where we've got, you know, two two separate metaphysical substances altogether. You introduce idealism, but that uh, sorry, not idea. You introduce um, substance dualism, and then you go on to critique it, though, for for various reasons. You don't you don't think that it it works, or you don't think that it's the best um, account. And some of your criticisms sound quite similar to what you know a, a materialist might might say as well to the substance dualist. Do you want to highlight what? the position is that the substance, I mean, there's, there's various different positions you, like you talk about in your book, some of the more um, modern people might hold something slightly different perhaps, um, which might be worth touching on and what your criticisms of those positions are broadly. Yeah. So, I mean, the, as you say, the, the traditional debate is set up between dualists and materialists. And I mean, I don't fit into this dichotomy. I sort of came to be disillusioned with both and, as you say, probably my arguments against dualism would be shared by the materialist and my arguments against materialism are shared by the dualist. But I think both sides are right in their, in their critique of the other side and the position I ultimately defend, um, I think, strange as it initially sounds, avoids the difficulties that face both sides. So in terms of dualism, um, I mean, do we need to define that or are you... I, I suppose maybe just just touching on the key concepts of it and if if there's people who like aren't familiar maybe they'll get a bit left behind at a certain point but at least there's you know some some touching the ground there um in terms of what it is i mean the, the, the most straightforward form as you referred to substance dualism roughly the view that consciousness takes place in the soul a supernatural entity distinct from although closely connected to the body and the brain so um i guess a lot of substance students actually I, I use the word soul 
in the first draft of the book. And David Chalmers, probably the most well-known contemporary duelist, said, you have to take that word out. So, um, um, yeah, maybe they don't, they think this sort of, maybe religious connotations they don't necessarily adopt. They, they want to see it, although they think it's non-physical, they want to see it as part of the natural law-governed world. Yeah. But um, turning to the criticism, so I suppose, well, the criticism I outlined in the book, I've maybe got a little bit more agnostic on this, but the, the, the criticism that I outlined in the book, which is probably the most discussed criticism, is the thought would be, so the, the dualists, they, although they think the, the soul is different from the body and brain, they're closely connected. It's a bit like the way a drone pilot controls their drone for the duelist, it's a bit like that. Your soul is the pilot controlling the body and receiving information from the senses. So the thought is that, you know, if there was a non-physical soul piloting your brain, you know, impacting on it, then you'd, you'd think we'd be able to observe in the brain where the signals arrive from the soul. You know, just as you could, you could in principle observe in a drone where the radio signals sent by the pilot arrive. And so it would really show up in our neuroscience. There'd be all sorts of things happening in the brain that had no physical explanation. It would be like a poltergeist was playing with the brain. And the thought is we just don't seem to see that. It seems like everything that happens in the brain has a physical cause within the brain itself, which looks to be a sort of experimental disconfirmation of dualism. Um, I, I kind of changed my mind a little bit on this. I mean, I, the, just the more I talk to neuroscientists, really, I just think I'm not sure we are yet in a position to defend the argument I just gave. Because the more I talk to neuroscientists, it seems like I get the impression we know a lot about the basic chemistry, how neurons fire and um, calcium chambers and various, you know, um, and we know a fair bit about the large scale functions of the brain, you know, in, in the overall economy of the body and the functioning of the brain. But what we're kind of pretty clueless on is the middle bit is, is how those large scale functions are realized at the cellular level, how it works, essentially. And I sort of think we, we need to have much more of a, a grip on that before we can really be in a position to assess whether there are non-physical influences you know we'd be able to have to be able to really have a, a worked out model of that um now that's not to say dualism is is true but it's maybe undermines the kind of empirical case against it but even putting that aside i suppose scientists and philosophers tend to want to the most simple parsimonious elegant theory and dualism on the face of it is quite inelegant quite dis quite unparsimonious, you know, you've got physical things and non-physical things, totally different kinds of thing glued together. Um, so all, all things being equal, it would be better to have a, a more simple and unified theory of reality if one is available, and I think one is. So that would be my thoughts on dualism. So, so in terms of like, um, as well, how you're like assessing these theories of mind, it's, it seems to me like... Um, Philosophy of mind is relatively unique in the sciences in that it, it does seem quite linked to neuroscience and discoveries in that domain. But then it's it's also it's this question of how do you sort of um, 
how do you evaluate or assess the theories that people are putting forward? Because you talk about various um, various kinds of things there, like um, pe perhaps like overdetermination or the causal closure of physics. Or, but it still seems like you know the dualist can still say can still hold to the theory, and it, it because it's consistent with all the observations that we make almost, and then just add in new ad hoc postulates, <laughs> and it's very difficult to. I, I don't know. It's very difficult from my point of view to sort of ever say it is wrong and rule it out completely. Um, I mean, how, how do you actually go about assessing? Yeah. I, like I'm I'm really confident that dualism isn't true, for example, but I, I can't rule it out. I can't put my finger on whether I think it's wrong because of like the physics or wrong because um, like what if I conceptually analyze language, we don't seem to talk about persons, you know, like minds is logically derivative from persons or something. I, got, I don't know quite what it is that's wrong with it, but um, <laughs> something is. Yeah, um, no, it's a really good question getting clear on what exactly we're expecting of a theory of consciousness. So the way I think about it, I think there's there's a sort of scientific bit and there's um, a philosophical bit or a theoretical bit. So the scientific bit is the, the project of tracking the neural correlates of consciousness, NCC, you know, what what kinds of brain activity are associated with what kinds of conscious experience and you know so that's i mean it's, it's already a philosophically fraught project actually but that's it is an experimental task but that's not the end of the story because we ultimately want an explanation of those correlations you know why is it that various kinds of brain activity are associated with kinds of experience and and there are just various proposals. So one is um, one is the dualist view that they're sort of different things, but there's a causal relationship between them. One is the materialist view that they're sort of the same thing, a bit like water and H2O. You know, there aren't two things in this glass, the water and the H2O. There's just water just is H2O. My preferred explanation, which is a different one. So how do we so? How do we decide between those things? Um, well, ultimately, I just think we have to, like in all science, we have to go for the simplest theory that can account for the data. Um, I don't think, and we could get on to the reason why, I don't think materialism can account for the data, the, the reality of consciousness. Um, I think there are pretty good arguments that that um, that just can't be done, so, so that they, they can't account if, if you can't account for the reality of consciousness, then you can't account for its uh, being correlated with brain activity. The dualist is perhaps at odds with the experimental data, but it, or is at least not very parsimonious. So the panpsychist view, I think, can account for all the data and is pretty. It, it looks to be the simplest theory. So that's when we go for. So you say, you know, how can we ever definitely rule these things out? But I, actually, it's actually the same in in all of science because. In principle, there's for any scientific theory, there's always sorry for any empirical data, there's always an infinite number of theories compatible with the data. Right. How, how do we choose between them? Usually, on the basis of simplicity, we go for the simplest one, right. and usually that's kind of obvious. There have been moments in the history of science where that's been quite important. The move to special relativity was empirically equivalent to the theory of Lorentz that preceded it 
but Einstein just offered a much more simple and elegant interpretation of the data. So, um, so it's basically how, how we do science really. So the difference is, I mean, just to, why can't we just answer this as an experiment? The, the, what is so unique about consciousness and why it's not just another scientific problem is that consciousness is not publicly observable. You know, you can't look inside somebody's head and see their feelings and experiences. We know about consciousness, not from observation and experiment, but from our immediate awareness of our feelings. So that really limits our capacity to deal with it experimentally. I think all we can do experimentally. So how do we deal with experimentally? Well, we can we can't observe it, but we can ask people right. what they're feeling and experiencing. I mean, very crudely, this has got all sorts, you know, got much more sophisticated. But ultimately, it's grounded in being able to ask people what they're experiencing um, or knowing through interacting with them and observing brain activity and sort of put the two together. That's because consciousness is not publicly observable that's as far as you can go experimentally so then you have to just turn over to philosophy and say what's the simplest philosophical theory that can account for though that the fact that brain activity and conscious experience are tied together um i think materialism just can't do it it's ex its explanation just fails which you're going to do dualism is not very simple my view is simple and does the job so, so that's simple as that really so in in the book after um you've sort of explained why you're not convinced by dualism uh you go into can physical science explain consciousness but the, at the start of that um i think there's something to be said as well about the weight that you put on philosophical inquiry um in in general, like like a, a methodological thing, because I think I think yeah. perhaps imp implicit within materialism, there's this idea again that um, it, it's all going to be you know experimental data. It's all going to be empirical information about the world. Whereas you sort of spend a bit of time explaining um, why um, philosophical argumentation actually shouldn't just be kind of discarded. And you give an example of. Um, Galileo's argument against um, Aristotelian physics, and I, I wondered if you could if you could just kind of explain what it is that you think the role of philosophy is, because I think you know, like in in um, the Theaetetus for um, Socrates, said for well, Plato writing about Socrates says you know that that what he's doing is he's making sure that Theaetetus isn't giving birth to any wind eggs, like he's kind of like um, you know a maiden sort of helping give birth to these ideas. Or some people might think um, philosophy is sort of the pinnacle of the sciences. Uh, I mean, how what, what do you think philosophy's role really is when it comes to um, figuring these things out? Um, it's quite a broad question, but. <laughs> I think it's important for how you how you then come to assess everything else afterwards. It's important, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people just don't know what the point of philosophy is. So, um, I'm sure people watching this have a better idea. But well, I mean, one one thing I, I think all philosophers would agree on is that it provides rigor and precision and conceptual clarity, and in some cases, that can reveal that a view can't possibly be true because there's a contradiction in it. So that was the wonderful case of Galileo saw in, um, you know, the common sense view of Aristotle that people have believed for thousands of years that heavy things fall faster. Just through thinking about it, 
Do you want to briefly outline the argument for people who might? Because I wasn't, I didn't know about this. Oh, I've thought about this for a while, actually. Um, well, the thought is so in the book, I imagine, I mean, this is captured in the famous dropping two objects from the Leaning Tower of Pisa, um, a feather and a lead ball, isn't it? And I don't think he. Yeah, and they were chained together or something. If you, you assume towards contradiction that they've been chained together. That's in the thought experiment. So we have this idea of Galileo dropping these objects. I, I think he never actually did that. And anyway, it wouldn't have worked because of wind resistance. Okay. Air resistance. But they actually did it on one of the Apollo missions because there's no, uh, you know, the, the two things dropped, the feather and the lead ball at the same speed. But yeah, so in the thought experiment, what I imagined in the book, an, an elephant and a bowling ball maybe was it? So we imagine we imagine uh, that they're tied together and we imagine that they're not tied together. If we imagine that they're tied together, what's going to happen? So Aristotle's assumption that, that turned out to be contradictory is that the elephant's going to fall faster. Right, so now you've got them tied together. Well, on the one hand, you might think, oh, well, now they're one thing. So they're going to fall even quicker right? Because the weight of the elephant plus the weight of the bowling ball. But on the other hand, you might think, well, hold on, the, the bowling ball is going to fall slower. So that's going to sort of slow down the elephant a little bit, you know, by making the rope taut. Uh, and it seems you could derive both of those implications, which are just contradictory, that it will fall faster and it falls slower. So Galileo realized just through thinking that it, it couldn't possibly be true. So it's like, um, it's the the, the, one of the few philosophical arguments that's just like completely convinced everyone. So that's, I mean, that's one role, but also it depends. Here's a philosophical question. It's not a scientific question. It's a philosophical question. What are the data for a theory of reality? What's, what sort of data do we have to inform our theory of reality? I think a lot of people would say public observation and experiment. That's the only data we have. That's the goal of science is to um, work out the best theory that can account for the data of public observation experiment. Once you've done that, job done. I think if you religiously follow that, you won't believe in consciousness because consciousness is not known about in that way. If you're just going off public observation experiment, I, I, I wouldn't believe you have feelings because I can't observe them. I would just postulate mechanisms to explain your behavior. Now, Daniel Dennett is wonderfully consistent on this. He, um, you know, he thinks consciousness, is not, in the sense I mean it at least, is not publicly observable, so it doesn't exist. Um, so, so I think, but lots of people, so I think I'm consistent. I think Dennett's consistent. Lots of people are in a confused in the middle bit where they think the job of science is just to account for publicly observable data. But of course, consciousness exists as well. Well, if consciousness exists as well, then that's another datum that should inform our theory of reality. Um, so I think there are, so, so, so that, then there's a, a further task for philosophy because there are things, there are specifically philosophical data, there are things we know about reality that don't come from observation experiment. So then the job of the philosopher in that case is to take what scientists tell us from observation experiment, but also the other things we know to be real, like feelings and experiences, and then put them together in the simplest 
theory of reality we can come up with. So consciousness is the most obvious one of the sort of extra scientific data. There might be others. I mean, others, ones I've talked about are, for example, um, mathematical objects like numbers. You know, mathematicians talk about these ma mathematical objects. Most mathematicians are intuitive Platonists. They think, you know, there is this realm of timeless objects that they discover things about. So that's not that's not coming from public observation experiments. So again, that might be another thing, another uh, datum we have to account for. Facts about value, perhaps, if you think there are objective facts about value. So all these things are somewhat controversial, but so if you think there are these non-scientific data points, these things we know about reality that should inform our theory, then there's a much more substantive task for the philosopher. It's not just about logical rigor. It's about taking what we know from science, taking what we know in other ways, and molding it all together in a theory of reality. Uh, so that's how I think about philosophy. Um, but obviously, if, if some philosophers think that there's only the data of public observation experiment, they're going to think philosophy has a much narrower role. But if, if, like me, you think there are other things at the very least consciousness, then there's a serious role for philosophy in putting it all together. So, so one of the first arguments that you give of that form in the book is uh, Mary's Room, uh, thought experiment with Frank Jackson, um, that it's by originally. And um, I guess, did you put that in there because it's one of the ones you personally are convinced by the most? Or was it more as like an intuition pump type thing to get people thinking in, the, in those terms? I think it is a very convincing argument. I think it's one of the most convincing. It's a tricky argument, though, because it's got a kind of easy-to-grasp story, and people always think they've got it because they grasp the story. But it's actually it's a bit tricky to really really get exactly how the argument works. But well, could, could you highlight the... Oh, sorry, if you've got something to say there. Well, just, but, uh, just yeah. Before we get on to that, just to say, if I'm just giving the basic argument, though, I think that's... It's quite hard, the knowledge argument, in a way. I mean, the starting point challenge to materialism, I would just say, is that physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary, whereas consciousness involves qualities, the, the colours, sounds, smells, tastes, qualities which, as Ga Galileo saw, you, you just can't capture in these purely quantitative vocabulary of physical science. So as long as you're your description of the brain is framed in the purely quantitative vocabulary of physical science, you'll just miss out these qualities of, of, of experience and hence miss out kind of consciousness itself. And, you know, this was all foretold by Galileo. That's why he took consciousness out. So that's, I mean, that's the, the generally, if I'm, I, I would just press that argument about the inability to capture the qualities of experience in the quantitative language of physical science. But then I think if you get more in depth on the argument, then I think you turn to the knowledge argument to really hammer that point home. So could you briefly um, describe Mary's room, what the thought experiment is, what um, where it sort of drives us if we if we accept um, that what we're conceiving works, I suppose? So, yeah, so Mary is a genius, colorblind, a genius, she's not colorblind, what am I talking about? She's a genius neuroscientist. I need to brush up on my thought experiments. Genius neuroscientist who knows everything there is to know about color experience. She's an expert in color experience. 
everything that physically goes on. Sorry, I I I need to correct that. She yeah, knows. Let's start again. Don't worry. <laughs> let's start again. So the story goes like this. So Mary is a genius neuroscientist who specializes in color experience, and she knows everything physical that happens in the brain when people experience color. So she knows, you know, the the the, the wavelength of light that goes in people's eyes corresponding to different colors, the changes that makes in their brains, how that ultimately causes speech and behavior. She knows it all. But for some reason that's never explained, she's been raised in a black and white room and she's only ever seen black and white and shades of gray. So she's never actually seen colors apart from uh, monochrome. So that's the setup. And then one day, the climax of the story, She's liberated from her prison. Again, this is not explained why, but let's say she liberate from her, liberated from her room and she sees colours for the first time. She sees a red, bright red rose on the threshold of the room. And the thought is the proponent of the knowledge argument says, at this point, Mary learns something new. She gains some new information about colour experience. What is that information? She learns what it's like to see color, what it's like to see red, for example. She learns the qualitative character of a red experience. That's something she couldn't learn from all the quantitative um, theory she learned in her black and white room. So, so that's the setup. And the argument goes something like this. Um, you know, if materialism is true, the physical neuroscientific story is the complete story of, of color experience. So if you know the complete neuroscientific story, you ought to know it all. There ought to be nothing you can learn. No, you, it's, it ought not to be possible for you to learn new essential features of color experience. Just like, you know, suppose you have the complete theory of black holes and it shouldn't be possible to sort of learn something new about black holes some new essential feature you didn't know, like they emit radiation, as Stephen Hawking discovered. Right, so so in her room, she already has the complete theory. And yet she learns something new. She learns some new information. She learns some new essential feature of color experience. Therefore, the theory she had in her black and white room, the complete neuroscientific theory, can't have been complete. Therefore, materialism must be false. That's the clue. So people often skip over the that it's all about knowledge or information she gains new information whereas according to materialism she already had all the information that's the sort of picture yeah i th i think for for me there's i i think i share the intuition that she learns something new but i also have this intuition that there's something off with the argument and this is what i was thinking um as i was thinking about it while i read your book and i wonder um what you think about this. So I, I thought if it's the Pope's ex cathedra room or something, right? And there's, suppose there's this person, the, po the Pope's speaking ex cathedra, the correct metaphysical theory of um, souls or whatever um, to, to someone who's in a room. And, you know, he, t he tells them all, all the facts about um, what the correct ontology is to add in and how all the causal interactions work and stuff like that. But then when that person leaves the room, 
uh, was it's black and white as well. I don't I forgot to mention that at the start. They're, they're, they're raised and everything in a black and in a black and white room, similarly, just symmetrically. But when they leave the room, they see something red. I still s sort of share the intuition that they they learn something new. That the description by the Pope speaking ex cathedra of um, the correct metaphysical theory about um, mind and consciousness didn't contain what it's like to um, experience that fact. Now, is is does that help you see like is there something i'm missing or getting wrong or is that a point against the argument it sounds a little bit like the david lewis very influential philosopher his his paper on mary you know responding to it called what experience teaches and he had a similar idea that you know suppose we have the complete so okay suppose the argument works and dualism is true so then we have the not just right. the mary lens not just physical less science lessons but i don't know psychophysics or yeah. something or you know dualist theory but she still learned something new so he thought you know no matter what information you give her she's not going to learn anything new um so i think what what the dualist was and, and i guess he was trying to get at the idea that, that there isn't really a kind of information um and maybe maybe you're pushing that way too i'm not sure but well, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I've not figured out what I think is wrong with it. <laughs> I just think there is something wrong with it. <laughs> what the dualist would say, I think, is that this is a kind of information that you can only get from actually having the experience. When you have a red experience and you attend to the qualitative character, that's the only way to get this information. And so, so the problem with your thought experiment, I would say, you know, I mean, I'm, we. Yes. Argue, is I think for the Pope to get that across to you, they'd have to actually give you the experience or somehow magically convey its character. It's not the kind of thing you can just convey in words. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so, so one very common misunderstanding that I've been arguing on, I had a big argument on Twitter with Patricia Churchland about, you know, some people think the argument's supposed to be, oh, duelists stupidly think reading neuroscience should give you experiences. Um, and of course, no one thinks that because it's, it's, you know, it's about how your brain is wired up. It's, that's not the point. It's that reading neuroscience should give you all the information, but it doesn't because there's a kind of information you can only get through having the experience. But it's information. It's information about reality. You know, the, the conscious states are, are a part of reality and they actually have this character and you can only know the character by having the experience. So, yeah, that's that's what I would say. I, I guess I, I'm thinking, like, I could see taking various options on the room argument and either committing myself to whatever kind of theory of mind that I hold to once you know all facts about it, you do have that experience or sort of um, just divorcing um, divorcing the description from the experience and saying, you know, the modes of presentation are different or something like that. But I, I think I could fit that consistently with, um, you know, like dualism or panpsychism or emergentism of some physical sort. Um, so I guess like I think... I, for, for me personally, like I find this argument interesting because it guides your intuitions in that way, but I don't think it, um, I, I don't think it sort of pushes me to any particular conclusion. Um, so I'm not sure the, 
so you, you gave two possible responses there, if I heard rightly. The first was like, if you knew the theory, you'd have the experience. I think that would be quite an odd thing to claim. I don't know anyone who claims that just learning a theory of consciousness will get, you know, if you're colorblind, you're, if you're blind from birth and you learn about this theory, you read it in Braille, you have color experiences. I think that would be a bit a bit of a strange thing to hold. But the, the second thing you said um, to do with modes of presentation, so that's probably the most popular response. Um, referred to as the phenomenal concept strategy. So to say um, that what Mary gains when she comes out of the room is, is not new information, but a radically new way of thinking about the information Right. she already yeah. had. So just like... Um, like the mental representation is different. Like you can think of, yes. um, I don't know, like... A, you can think of something geometrically or algebraically or something, and it's the same thing, but I, I, yeah. maybe that's not quite right, but. Yeah, or, um, you know, if I'm taking my four-year-old four out to look at the stars and she knows about that bright star, that bright star, and then one day she learns it's a Venus, and she's not learning something, learning about something new. She's just sort of learning a right. new label for something she already yeah, right. knew about. So that's what they think. So they, they, they draw attention to the special phenomenal concepts that, that we have a funny way of thinking about our own experiences. We're able to, you know, introspect and reflect on the how what it's like to have the experience or what it's, how it feels and think about it that way. That's a very, special way of thinking about something they think what we're thinking about is just a brain state and mary already knew about the brain state but she learns this radically new way of thinking about it so that might trick you into thinking she's gaining some new information but um so that's i mean that's a popular response um well where should we do i mean i mean one just um one very intuitive re response to that this is not a sort of fantastic response but uh just just a very intuitive point i think it's natural to think mary would be curious about what it's like to see red and go oh that's what it's like oh you know if you've never tasted something actually david lewis gave the example of marmite if you've never tasted it and you think oh that's what it's like wow that, and your curiosity is satisfied and that suggests to me that that seems like you're learning new information it makes perfect sense on my view because you're learning this new information about the qualitative character. But if you're just learning a new label, then it seems like, you, you, how would your curiosity be satisfied? You're, you're just learning to point at something in a different way. So this is actually, um, in the we're getting into the, the technicalities of the, of the academic debate now that what was so, some people refer to as the new challenge that I and other people pushed that, um, the, the problem with the very popular response from a concept strategy is that it's hard to make sense of the sort of um, the how rich the new knowledge is. It's it really feels like you're you're gaining. You're not just labeling something in a different way. You're sort of a cognitive achievement. I think some people put it. Okay. So um, yeah. So that's. So is this just guarding your? I don't know. I I I I don't think there is a plausible way to respond to this argument, to be honest. Um, but I think really it's just guiding us to see that um, 
you know that these qualitative characters can't be captured in the in the language of mathematics and i mean i i, I sort of think that's that's pretty intuitive to start off with i mean wh where it all comes down well i mean if you if you want to the kind of to get even more into the technical details i think where it all comes down to is when we attend to our experience are we learning some information are we learning something about its nature so ultimately most physicalists want to say no when you you're just pointing at something you're kind of blindly pointing so when you attend to your pain and you think about it in terms of how it feels you're just pointing at something inside yourself evolution has endowed us with the capacity to point inside ourselves turns out you're pointing at a brain state you have to do some science to find that out so if that were true, that would, materialism would make perfect sense. But that just seems to me a, a crazy view of our experiential concepts. I think, you know, when you attend to the, your feeling of pain, you're learning something rich about it. When you let, you're learning how it feels, that is a substantive fact about it. So I think, I think really, and this is what I've argued, and this is where I differ from David Chalmers, who's on my side of the debate, I think that the, our case really hangs and falls on whether introspectively you have some insight into the nature of your experiences um, in, in learning about this qualitative character. Um, I, I, I think it hangs and falls on that. And so that's really, at the end of the day, what we need to fight about. And, and actually, you're right that um, the knowledge argument, if, if you're prepared to deny that, then the knowledge argument doesn't doesn't really threaten you that that's really what we ultimately need to get to um, the the first um way of responding that um you said was sort of implausible i agree it's kind of implausible but i think it, it's the response some people go with where um it'll just kind of be like well yeah that just is the consequence of knowing all the physical facts or something would be to have you know that kind of what it's like to experience red and then it, it and then it, i suppose <laughs> maybe to be a bit fluent it, it just becomes like um who's going to question beg their worldview almost like you know I, well I, I, it's I'm... worse than that because it, it goes against everything science has told us so far you know everything we know about anything that tells you that someone who's blind since birth is not gonna experience colors from reading neuroscience you know why would why would anyone you know i think yeah. everything we know from science tells you, you know you have to wire up the brain in the right way um so i mean maybe it comes back to you know yeah at the end of the day if you if you're just so utterly convinced that materialism has to be correct then you have to sort of bite some big bullets and, and i suppose that comes back to my galileo point that actually the main motivation for people thinking materialism has to be correct is a misunderstanding of the history of science. And then, you know, we're less influenced to resist these arguments. But, um, yeah. Well, so I suppose in, in the way you're thinking or using uh, qualia here, like what, the, what it's like to experience something, um, like can that be represented as information? Um, or is that it? Are you saying that's irreducible to, you know, like that couldn't be stored as any kind of information? You know, it, could, it couldn't be represented as zeros and ones on a computer. It couldn't be described in like a metaphor or something like that. Um, 
I don't, I don't know, is that, because I, th I think that there's something important there in, you know, the way I was trying to have like the Pope's ex cathedra room where it's like, well, if we have all the, um, all the correct dualist facts say, then surely there's the informational content there of what it's like to, you know, if that if that's the correct theory and the and the argument works in in that way, surely that contains the information somehow of what it's like to, um, or is it that yeah. um, is it that the qua the qualia can't be like reduced and represented in that way because it's something fundamental? Is that's what what's being said? Yeah, I've realized actually I've been using the word information a lot and that might potentially be misleading. We use this word in lots of ways. We, I wasn't thinking of it in the sense of kind of information processing in a computer. I was just thinking information in the more human semantic sense where you learn something, you know, you right. learn something about the world. Oh, again, I, you know, in the sort of very common ordinary parlance kind of meaning of the word. So I think, you know, when when Mary learns what it's like to read she she learns something she learns something about some real information about reality that oh that's what the character of the experience is um but yes i i also what you were saying i don't think that kind of let's call it phenomenal information or qualitative information i don't think that qualitative information can be stored in in the kind of information processing of a computer um it's it's the kind of information you can only come to know through having the experience and attending to it. So look, I mean, you could argue, get you, you know, like like David Lewis, you could try and press the the. I mean, it's famously ineffable, isn't it? You can't communicate it to, to somebody who hasn't had the experience, as uh, Louis Armstrong allegedly said about jazz. If you have to ask what it is, you'll never know. You know, when someone said, what's jazz? He said, if you have to ask, you'll never know. There's uh, a famous quote about porn. I know it when I see it, but I'm not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't yeah. remember. I think that was in a legal context or something. A similar thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, someone trying to define pornography for legal purposes. I've heard that before. Um, so, yeah. So you might try and press, is this really information at all? You know, I, I can see an argument. What One could press that. and. Um, um but for me personally it's about starting points i think you you'd only be sort of skeptical that it's a kind of information because you're thinking about physical information and um you know i think if you if you sort of if you're a physicist or a physical scientist and you're in that world of operationalizing everything and and you but what what are your starting points i mean i think one a leg perfectly legitimate starting point for philosophy is the evident reality of our own conscious experiences and when you're thinking in those terms the idea that this it, the nature of the experience can only be known through having the experience that's a perfectly ordinary fact about conscious experience that most people find quite intuitive it's only if you think oh no we've got to we've got to understand everything as somehow absorbable into the stories in physical science that it looks a bit weird but but i think why should we do that we're, we're led to do that because of misunderstanding of the history of science so it's back to the galileo point i i think on the the information point could be interesting because i suppose if um if someone can then represent their 
experience or or they can you know that you you can write draw a a painting or write a uh, you know a poem or something about what it was like but that isn't i you know that that doesn't necessarily contain the experience that's a representation yeah. of the experience that you do but i suppose from an information point of view though that could be seen as like um it is maybe like a kind of interaction problem or something, you know, where it's like a, a, it would someone who had a new experience then be able to describe it and like bring new information into the physical reality or something. Um, could there be a problem from that point of view as well for Qualia not being something physical? Yeah, there was a huge, there was a, it was a big discussion for a little bit about 10 years ago. One of my first blog posts was on it actually. Um, from um, Michael Ty and what's his name, Ball. I can't remember his first name offhand. Sorry. And it's not, sorry, I'm not. I'm not sure. It's okay. So yeah, I um, can't. Which I thought was like color experience terms are in the linguistic community, and and if Mary can get one of those linguistic terms talking to someone on the telephone then doesn't she have the concept? And it's to do with this stuff from Tyler Burge about a linguistic division of labor. Like I might, I have the concept of Arthur, I, I might have the concept of an electron because I can use the public language term, even though I don't know, you know, the kind of information about that a physicist has. So, oh you know, gosh. Mary, she kind of can use the term of public language. So doesn't she have a concept of what it's like to see red? And um, so Torin Alter had a good response to this, but um, um, I suppose I'd say, I mean, it's tricky to know exactly how to put it, how, the precise response, but yeah, in some sense, the public language terms refer to the experiences. Um, and, you know, in, in your poem or whatever, but you, co you couldn't convey that information to someone who doesn't already have the experience, um, even though the term refers to the character of the experience, the crucial point still remains that just using the term, you couldn't convey to someone mm. that the character of the experience. So, so I never thought there was much really of interest in this debate, um, but it was a little debate for a, a year yeah. or so. Yeah, I so I I was kind of thinking of um you know like the issues around like black holes and things and information like do, does information go out of the universe or in, or stay at the edge or whatever, um, and I, I mean not not completely analogous but that was what popped into my mind sort of so I was I I agree there's some really interesting problems here but I'm like I, I'm just like thinking like how do I, I think it's what you're what you're saying that fundamental issue is like I have a model of reality and I also have like my first person experiences and I am trying to like puzzle it out like what does it mean or how do they how do they mm. fit together the the story I tell myself about what the world out there is like and you know what it's like to be me kind of thing yeah 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 just, just sorry just Derek Derek Ball I just ah, okay he sorry was... sorry I just okay. <laughs> you on you. That was very rude. don't worry uh, no it's all right it's all right yeah, so again, if you think of information going in a black hole, I think we're back to a different sense of information there, which is way yeah. why the, me using the word information because it's a bit problematic. So, you know, in physics, you think of information as just, um, you know, the causal impact of something. When you talk about, you know, can we get information from this part of the universe or another, you mean like how fast could a causal C 
signal get across. So that's a sort of very um, physicalistic notion of information. Difference that makes a difference as um, what's his name calls it. His name escapes me right now. Yeah, I, I've um, heard the quote, but I can't remember who it was. Should know. Uh, as opposed to a more semantic notion of information, just learning some stuff about the world. Right. So, yeah. But, um, yeah. Well, we, we can move the, the second argument that you give in the book, um, which is against physicalism, is to do with philosophical zombies. Um, I think that this is the one that's more to do with David Chalmers, who you've said is sort of on your side of the camp, but you kind of disagree with on, on some things as well. Do you want to sort of paint the picture of what philosophical zombies are, um, what role they play in argumentation and sort of guiding again um, what can be conceived? And I also... I, after that, I, th I think I also wanted to talk to you about um, like epistemic, metaphysical, and logical possibility because you said in your book uh, and in con in your other uh, consciousness explained book, which I haven't read yet, that you sort of reduce um, two into one, and we we can talk about that. But for first, to do the uh, p what the what the p zombies are and stuff, and I'll remember to ask ask the question. <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm probably going to go in about half an hour just. Oh, okay. To, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely fine. Uh, yeah, no problem. Say that to think about what what, what to fit yeah. in. Um, Consciousness explained was Daniel Dennett's book. This uh, so my academic book is Consciousness and. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. That's, um, very different kind of books, though. I don't want people getting. Yeah, different different uh, camps in the in the <laughs> like. Uh, very it's like a theological split of philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so. Zombies, yeah, I mean, again, zombies are even more technical than the Mary argument. So, I, you know, I don't tend, I wouldn't raise this in, in, in a sort of um, popular discussion of consciousness. It's really getting into the technicalities. But the, but the idea with the definition of a zombie, we've got to, as you say, remember that sharply distinguish philosophical zombies from Hollywood zombies. So philosophical zombies, they don't, wander around trying to eat people's brains out they are walk and talk and behave in all ways just like a normal human being and the reason they do so is because their bodies and brains are wired up or in exactly the way a normal human being is all the physical workings are just as in a normal human being but they have no conscious experience there's nothing that it's like to be a philosophical zombie, right? So you stick a knife in a philosophical zombie, they scream and try to get away, but they don't actually feel pain. Or they're trying to cross the road, they'll, you know, look carefully um, and wait till the traffic stops and then carefully cross, but they don't actually have any visual or auditory experience of the world. So that's the definition. So the first thing to say is nobody thinks they're real. That's not the that's not the point um except but, elimin eliminativists uh <laughs> oh yeah quite right you don't believe in consciousness at all daniel dennett once said we're all zombies but um the the, uh, the claim is by people like me or david chalmers is that they're logically coherent there's no contradiction in the idea of a zombie so um you want to ask are they more like flying pigs or square circles. So neither of these things exist, 
But flying pigs at least seem to be logically coherent. There's no contradiction in the idea of a flying pig. You have to actually do some science to work out the fig that figs can't fly or pigs can't fly. Whereas uh, square circle is just contradictory. You can know just by thinking about it that there are no square circles anywhere in the universe, which is quite an extraordinary thing to be able to do. But anyway, so the thought is, on the face of it, zombies seem more like flying pigs than square circles. They don't. They might not exist. They don't exist, but they're logically possible. And then the thought is, well, if they're if they're logically coherent, then so why do we care about that? Well, a lot of people like me, for example, think that that shows. Well, I do it a different way in the book, but that shows that there could be such things, right? If the universe had gone very differently, if the law, maybe if the laws of nature had been different, there could have been zombies walking the earth. This shows that that's the difference between, that's how we know if something's possible or impossible, whether it's logically coherent. Flying pigs are logically coherent, so they're possible. They could exist if the universe was very different. Square circles are, um, are not logically coherent, and so, no matter how weird or wacky the universe was, they weren't going to. They couldn't possibly exist. So the ne so the next stage of the argument is that zombies are logically possible. They could have existed um, if the universe had been very different. Do so I think? Okay, so who cares about that? You know, who cares what's possible? Surely we want to know what's real. But th this is the least controversial part of the argument. I would say almost everybody agrees that if zombies are even possible. Not if they're real, if they're even possible, maybe in the right sense, we could talk about that. But if they're even possible, physicalism can't be true. Materialism can't be true. And that's because it's just sort of part of the definition of materialism that the physical facts, the facts about particles and fields, whatever, they fix all the other facts. They ne necessitate all the other facts. Um Sometimes put Saul Kripke expressed this with a theological metaphor that, you know, what did God have to do to create the universe for a physicalist or a materialist? All God has to do is just fix all the physical facts, part arrange all the particles, make the fields, everything else just comes for free. I mean, so he, he wasn't a theologian. This was just a kind of metaphor. So for the for the materialist, the physical facts fix everything. And that just entails that zombies are impossible. If my physical nature totally determines my conscious nature, then it's just impossible for there to be something physically just like me, but without consciousness. So there's three moves in the argument. Zombies are coherent, premise one. If they're coherent, they're possible. If they're possible, materialism is false. And actually... Um, the final stage of moving the argument is, is the least controversial. There are some people who disagree with it. Barbara, Barbara Montero is a philosopher who disagrees with that. But, but you know, 99% of philosophers would agree with that, I'd say. The final move. I'm, I'm wondering, again, um, sim similarly to the way that I thought about um, Mary's room, like if, if something like panpsychism is true, and maybe this is, again, a misunderstanding of um, panpsychism, but where to where consciousness is some kind of intrinsic um, property of fundamental particles. 
shouldn't philosophical zombies be impossible on that theory as well, though? Like, you know, if if you have all the all the physical facts, which includes the consciousness facts um, about the intrinsic consciousness in stuff, shouldn't it be impossible to have that arrangement without an accompanying something it it's like to be? Yeah, no, it's a it's a good it's a very good question. So basically, you have to distinguish two kinds of zombies. I think I called them in my academic work shallow zombies and deep zombies or something. Um, so a shallow zombie would just be, well, actually, we haven't got into panpsychism, but I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, maybe, maybe it, it if might... I'm misconceiving panpsychism at all as well. I mean, may, I, I'm also a bit cognizant of time. So, it, do you want to briefly go into what panpsychism is, and we can talk if we can talk about it a bit more after that, and then and then say maybe go into that distinction. Um, on the deep and shallow zombies. Yeah, so panpsychists basically distinguish between what matter does and what it is, the latter sometimes be, being called its intrinsic nature. So um, so the starting point thought here is, is, is you think physics is giving us this rich, you know, it's telling us everything about the nature of matter, but actually... Physics actually just tells us what stuff does. Tells us, you know, how particles and fields interact. Um, talks about mass and charge. And, and these are completely defined behaviorally in terms of attraction, repulsion, resistance, acceleration. It's just about what stuff does. But the thought is it doesn't really tell us what stuff is. It doesn't tell you. It tells you. So physics tells us what an electron does. But it doesn't actually tell you what an electron is. Or physics tells us what a field does but it doesn't tell us what it is so it's like i sometimes give a chess piece analogy it's like when you're playing chess you don't care what the pieces are made of you might not know if they're made of wood or metal or plastic you just want to know what they do when you play in when you do in physics it's a bit like playing chess without knowing what the pieces are you, you know you know what electrons do you know what all the particles do you got your mathematical equations to tell you what they do but you don't really know what what the hell these things are so the thought is there's this kind of hole in our scientific story. Physics tells us what stuff does, but not what it is. And then the thought was, and this is goes back to something Bertrand Russell wrote in 1927 in his book, The Analysis of Matter, and also things Alfred North Whitehead was saying around the same time. Well, hold on. We're looking for a place for consciousness. We can't fit consciousness into scientific story. We've got this hole. Uh, so maybe we can put consciousness in the hole. So the idea is, you know, all the, all there is is, I mean, the kind of view I would then all there is is consciousness. Um, and physics tells us how conscious things behave. <laughs> um, so if, if you think again of the chess piece analogy, you know, you just play in chess without knowing what the pieces are made of. The pieces are made of consciousness. And if you're just doing physics, you don't know that. Because you, you're not interested in what the pieces are made of. You're just interested in what they do. But actually, they're just purely made of consciousness. So, so we have this division between what matter does and what it is. What it is is consciousness, forms of consciousness. And then physics tells what it does. So coming back to the zombies. Yeah, like what? how, how does a... How does an arrangement of fundamental, you know, two-sided stuff, I suppose, and if that if that is what the panpsychist is, is committed to, how can that not fail to be conscious and be yeah. the the correct arrangement? So 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 as I say, we have to distinguish two 
shallow zombies and deep zombies. So a shallow zombie, let's say, is identical. So your shallow zombie twin, shallow zombie Nathan, is just like you behaviorally in terms of what it does and what its parts do, right down to fundamental particles. Yeah. They all do the same stuff. But it might it might it might be in terms of we're thinking what, what matter is, it, it might actually be different stuff. The stuff that behaves all the same. Just like you know, you're playing chess, the pieces could be made of wood or metal or plastic. They do the same stuff though. Okay. So the shallow zombie um is might be made out of very different stuff, but it but it behaves just the same. Whereas a deep zombie is identical in both senses, in terms of its behavior and the behavior of its parts, and in terms of what the parts are in their intrinsic nature, uh, as we tend to say. Um, so so panpsychists will say shallow zombies are logically coherent. Shallow zombies are possible. Mm. And that shows that physicalism is false, materialism is false, that the, the kind of facts of physical science, these behavioral facts, can't explain consciousness because you could duplicate all the behavioral facts and still not get consciousness. But deep zombies are not possible because... In our universe, physical stuff just is consciousness stuff. So, of course, if you're duplicating the consciousness stuff, you get consciousness because that's that's what it is. It's contra It would be a straightforward contradiction to say if, if I say yeah. if my view is that Nathan's made up of consciousness stuff, conscious particles, and we duplicate those conscious particles, yeah. then of course you've still got consciousness. So, so that's I mean, this shows that for the panpsychist, consciousness is the stuff, the concrete stuff of the physical world. Is consciousness stuff? As I would put it, matter is what consciousness does. Um, it's just, it's just that physical science doesn't tell us the nature of its subject matter. It doesn't tell us what matter is, only what it does. I, I, I think, I wonder then, you know, what is it that doesn't drive you into like a kind of idealism here? Like, what is it that makes it panpsychism as opposed to? you know, say, saying that um, really there's just conscious stuff and, um, you know, the all, all of our, our experiences of the external world are presentations of conscious stuff, um, really. Um, there isn't a sort of shared external world, so to speak. Yeah, so again, it maybe depends what you mean by idealism. It always gets like this with philosophy, doesn't it? You know, we end up with different notions of zombie or different notions yeah. of idealism. But... If, if by idealism you just mean at the fundamental level there's just mental stuff, then it might be a form of idealism. Right. But um, generally when we think of idealism, I think it's often the view that the physical world either doesn't exist or at least is not fundamental. That the physical world, at the fundamental level, there isn't physical stuff. I mean, so if we think of George Barclay's idealism, he thought, you know, he would say actually tables and chairs exist, physical things, but they're made up of ideas in our minds or the mind of God. So at the fundamental level, there aren't any physical things. They're just souls, minds, our minds, God's mind. I just mean to check what he thought about animals, actually. I don't know if he thought animals have minds. Yeah, that's a good point. But... Um, so in that way, the physical world is just a sort of construction. But the panpsychist is, is much more of a realist about the physical world. They think the okay. physical world is utterly real, concrete, fundamental. To, you know, what the things scientists are talking about are really out there. 
And so it's, you said then everything's a presentation of consciousness. That doesn't sound like panpsychism, right? This, the stuff yeah, is really that's what I meant for the idealist. So, yeah, so, idealist. so it, like, so the yeah. idealist is okay. sort of saying, you know, it's like a presentation of consciousness. And I suppose for, to commit oneself to panpsychism and say there's also this um, physical reality out there, they would say, is like a less parsimonious explanation. Um, you know, if we're if we're comparing theories, I think, you know, like someone someone like Castro might say that, for example. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, in a way, it's hard to see how it could be more possibilities because they both agree there's just consciousness stuff, but right. it's just it's the same stuff. It's, it's, the, it's, same it's the same same number of things. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just yeah, there there really are particles and fields and planets and stars, but they're made up of consciousness. Or and you know, it doesn't act, it doesn't mean that everything is conscious. It it could just mean that the fundamental particles are conscious and um sometimes the system as a whole is conscious obviously you and i are conscious but it doesn't mean tables or chairs or stars and planets are conscious um but yeah so also another reason it might not be idealism i mean i guess some panpsychists will say it isn't just pure consciousness that there's some non-mental properties to matter as well um so that that's an option for the panpsychist, and then it definitely wouldn't be idealism because there's there's not just consciousness stuff. So I think I think at this point, um, because we've not got a whole lot of time left, I'll jump to some questions from the chat um, that we've had throughout. So if I scroll right. up to earlier, someone sent a super chat, and I think I've lost it. Oh no! Oh, um, about it before we. But Brenda. Brenda, who has um, been replying to you on Twitter, apparently, um, has asked, uh, Philip just said that physics doesn't tell us what things are, but then he just said everything is consciousness uh, without telling us what it is. Um, not a question, Brenda, but <laughs> no, it's fine. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, I get the point. Um, yeah. It's a good point. I mean, it's sort of like the point Arnaud made to Descartes, actually. If you, it's wonderful at the, at the end of... Um, editions of Descartes' meditations. Was it or no? I don't think it, it was, I think it was someone else actually. But anyway, if you look at John Cottingham's edited edition of the Descartes' meditations, and you've got these criticisms of Descartes from philosophers at the time, and then his response is obviously incredible to, anyway, one of them, it wasn't, oh no, I can't think of it was now, but said, okay, but you say the mind is substance, but what is this substance? What is its internal nature? Tell me about, but I suppose, I mean, for 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 a panpsychist, and I mean, I think Descartes would say a similar thing in this context. Um, consciousness is the fundamental story, so so you can't really ask, you know, what what is it made of, and right. um, and the thought would be, okay, so you might say, well, what grip do we have on consciousness apart from what it does? I suppose I would say, and and Brenda might disagree with me here, and we could debate it, but that. I think we do have it when you attend to your the qualitative character of your experience that we talk so much about in the context of the knowledge argument. You do have a grip on its nature that isn't just about what it does. You know how it feels, the qualitative character of the experience. I think that is its nature. And it's not just about what it does. I think that is that is its nature. The, the qualitative experiential character is its nature. And I think that's that that's a that's a way of understanding what a pain is, for example, 
independently of what it does. You know how it feels. That's the intrinsic nature of the pain. So that's why I think this is a good candidate for being the intrinsic nature of matter. Because if you just look to the physical science description of matter, we do just learn about behavior. Relationships, if you want to put it another way, it's, you know, the relationships between things. Whereas when I think about how my pain feels, I don't think I'm thinking about the relationship to something else. I'm just thinking about the, the pain itself, mm. how it feels in itself. So that's that's the idea, actually. Schopenhauer had similar ideas. But anyway, um, obviously, all these points are debatable, but that's that's the, the argument. That's I philosophy, make. though. That's metaphysics. <laughs> There's nothing. Um, I got I Scott has retyped the super chat that I lost from earlier, which was um, how is this not uh, the philosophy of the gaps? Once we can measure and quantify consciousness, then what happens to this argument? And yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I, I won't interpret that. You you feel free to. <laughs> Yeah, sure. So, um, well, we already can't. So, I mean, look, the, the, the point I would press is that consciousness is not publicly observable. Right. So so this is why it's um, it, 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 it is different to any other um, scientific problem. And that constrains our capacity to deal with it experimentally. All we can do experimentally is establish these correlations. And then we've got to look for various accounts that have been proposed of those correlations. Um, so I think there are, you know, substantive reasons there to think this is not something you can, you, you can answer with an experiment. Um, the experimental data is neutral between all of these options. So if you're going to say this to, you know, panpsychism is the panpsychism, the gaps, uh, then you should say materialism is the same and or dualism is the same. You know, these are all um, go beyond the, you know, the experimental data. Um, I mean, one option is to be agnostic. My colleague Peter Vickers um, has argued in the um, Institute of Art and Ideas online thing that's unfortunately behind a paywall now but you know that we should just be agnostic because yeah this isn't something we can settle with an experiment so we should just be agnostic but i i think um you know i think i think we can demonstrate that you can't give a materialist explanation of consciousness uh for the reasons we've been discussing dualism is less simple than panpsychism i think you know in all in all of science what we do is go for the simplest theory that can account for the data. That is all I am doing, is giving what I would say is the simplest theory that can account for the data. Um, so, so I suppose I'd want to know, well, what, you know, why is that different to, to any other scientific enterprise? I mean, I'm not just, I'm not just saying, you know, I don't have an explanation, therefore. I don't know. I don't know how it's supposed to work to the God of the gaps idea. I, I'm, I'm saying this is the simplest account of the data. I suppose, so, I mean, it must be sorry, yeah. the only way I can interpret this is to say, of course, there will be a physical science explanation. And I, I would say, again, that's just, I'm afraid, you know, a misunderstanding of the history of science. So once you appreciate that point, then I, I just don't see what the, what where this objection is going, really. Yeah, I, I I think something that I found particularly useful from like Graham Oppie's work in philosophy of religion, as it applies to like worldview discussions, is that 
and we I think we sort of touched on this earlier when you were talking about interpretations of sciences, when it, as well when it comes to like arguments, there's basically for, for like a consistent set of beliefs, there's like an infinite set of like syllogisms that you can create that are going to drive to a conclusion. And someone else who isn't committed to like those same premises can just reject them. So you can go to, you can, you can show someone that internally within their worldview, there's a contradiction or a perceived contradiction, and then they might resolve it. And that might make their theory more complicated or more ad hoc or whatever, which is then a good reason to to reject it. But in some sense, if you disagree, you know, if, if you're holding to a different worldview with a different set of facts to someone else, it's very, very difficult to um, articulate that to them without sort of begging the question of your worldview, because you're just presenting, you know, you're just presenting an option and you're like, Here, here's the option that I've got and here's what I think. Um, mm. I, I, supp I suppose, you know, the, the difference is in, uh, I, I mean, like, be obviously be begging the question is, it is like a, a fallacy, but it, I think there's a role for just saying like let's let's lay out what the theories look like, um, which is again which is different from um, I, I think where the where the um, philosophy of the gaps thing fits in is like maybe maybe with um, like the god the god of the gaps idea it can seem like there's the there's more and more ad hoc. Um, accounts for the data that the physical science seem to be showing us to remain consistent with like a theistic hypothesis and maybe the question is something like um you know what kind of physical data could we find that would sort of falsify your theory or something like that but again it's very difficult to answer that without begging the question of materialism because there is a physical theory just over the horizon you know like when we find it, it, it yeah yeah, I mean, the other part of the question was was when we quantify. I mean, we can quantify consciousness in the sense of we, we can quantify lots of of the the, the structure of a, of a qual of a con conscious experience. Like if you think color experience, there's the dimensions of hue, saturation, and lightness, and then we can map a kind of similarity space there. But the point is that kind of structural information won't convey the redness of the red experience. It won't convey to a colorblind neuroscientist what it's like to see red. And if you think, oh, well, it will one day, one day, I mean, that's one, that's suggesting that one, that is suggesting that one day reading neuroscience will make you have see color experience if you're blind. I mean, that just, why would anyone think that? So I think yeah. I don't agree with Graham Copgopi. I don't think there is a plausible response to the knowledge argument. I think people, try to resist it because um, of a misunderstanding of the history of science. So, you know, so I suppose, look, the argument's quite simple is, you know, the, the, the knowledge argument shows the materialist, theory, the materialist can't, can't account for consciousness and panpsychism is simpler than dualism. So it's the simplest, it's the simplest account of the reality of consciousness. That's do, the do you think, yeah. as a as a um by the way it wasn't oppie didn't say that in response to that was just in general on like the role of argumentation in like apologetics and stuff and then i added some of the stuff in there so any right. bad i i'm i'm responsible for the bad ideas um <laughs> everyone needs a smile has said what could you discover that would push you towards for example i well i idealism in the question but i guess also maybe materialism or dualism like if you could go through like types of things that you would have to find that would you know shift you away reduce your competence in panpsychism what would they be 
Yeah, well, I mean, I did used to be a materialist, as I talk about in my book, because I thought it's the scientific option. And, and then um, I thought about things in a different way. So I don't think, as I say, it, it, I don't think it is an, an empirical question because consciousness is not publicly observable. I think actually, in some ways, I think that starting point settles everything, really. Once you reach it, that this that consciousness is not publicly observable, and that entails that there are limits of what we can do experimentally here. We can just set up these correlations. Then it's not, it's not like what experiment is going to make the difference here. But um, what would what would make the difference? I suppose, um, I mean, I would just have to change, I would just have to discover that I'd made some error philosophically. Um, but, you know, which I, which, I mean, every day I try to attack my arguments. I'm, there's a continuous internal monologue of trying to attack my arguments. So I suppose I would have to be... Um, the other day I was I was trying to really get in my friend Keith Frankish's head, actually. We're doing this podcast together. Yeah. He doesn't believe in consciousness. And what I was thinking was, well, you can be brainwashed about things, can't you? You can be brainwashed. I mean, what's the famous in 1985? Someone who's brainwashed to think two plus two is five. So you can be brainwashed, right? So so then I thought, okay, well, maybe we're just brainwashed by evolution to think um the qualities of consciousness are different from causal structure. So maybe maybe sort of brainwashed by, um, that could be true, I think. And then, and then maybe I could convince myself that actually maybe materialism is true, but evolution has brainwashed us to think it's not true. I think David Papineau has something like that view. Right. But then I think, I think the problem with that is, I, I, I don't think we can imagine a conceivable being that didn't have that problem. There's wonderful stuff by, um, what's his name, Camera, the other illusionist guy. I don't, I don't know enough about oh. illusionism. I always, I, I always see, seen uh, Keith's stuff, but I don't fully understand the position enough. It's kind of the same with eliminativism and stuff, because I feel like to it just say, you know, to just say, oh, there's no conscious experiences at all. It's like, it can't, it can't be that. Like, that just seems so wrong to me. I don't, <laughs> I don't, you know, like, a, yeah. so. So, yeah, no, no. But I think that was that would probably be the way I'd go before I, I, I before I went to straightforward materialism. I'd probably think I'd be more attracted to, attracted to illusionism. Or I'm just making some radical conceptual mistake in the way I think about consciousness. Um, but but as I'm thinking now is you know even if I'm being brainwashed, I can't. I don't think there could be a conceivable creature that wasn't subject to brainwashing in that way. So even though you could brainwash someone into thinking that two plus two is five. Another person can come and see that's false, but I, I don't see how somebody could rid themselves of the illusion that the qualities of experience can't be articulated in causal structural terms. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just I can't make sense. I, so I don't find it at all plausible at the moment, but I would have to just realize I've made some kind of conceptual error, I think. And, um, and I, I mean, I, I, it could happen. Frank Jackson, who came up with the knowledge argument, famously changes mind. Right. So um, thank you for your time and for kind of going through your book, which is Galileo's Error, if anyone does want to read it. Um, I, my camera went a bit weird then. I don't know if I saw it properly, but that's that's the book. So if people want to go and read more on this, and then there's footnotes as well to some of your other work in that. Um, well, we didn't is, get on to logical and epistemic possibility, did we? Do you want to quickly? No. quickly if, 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 if you want to quickly fire through that, um, that's well, okay. I'm, I'm it could, it could be a bigger fun. thing to unpack, which is a bit of an issue as well, because 
I, I think I think I have a bit more of an issue with the, con- the with conceivability arguments and arguing from like epistemic possibility to metaphysical possibility. And I, I but I don't I like I don't know. I, that's why I wanted to understand what your argument is a bit more before, you know, maybe that's a challenge to some of the things that I um, believe on that, that approach to philosophy. Um, do, you yeah, think, do you think there's time or do you think it's another? five minutes to just, okay. Uh, yeah, sure. Let's, let's trouble is I can't sleep. You see after these discussions and uh, <laughs> go well, hopefully it's not um, as stressful as the T jump conversation. So, <laughs> Oh yeah, that was fun. That was a bit earlier in the day. Oh, can I just give a quick plug to this, the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mind chat next Thursday where, uh, yeah. Is that on YouTube that you do? He doesn't believe in consciousness, phenomenal consciousness at least. And um, yeah, yeah. So we're going to be, uh, anyway, that's the plug. Oh, is that on YouTube, sorry? Yes, yes. Yeah. We, I think we're going to try and make a podcast. I haven't worked out how to do any of these things yet. But anyway. Yeah, I can, I can uh, it, it's pretty um, simple. I can send you some details on some oh, right. setups that I've got if it would be useful after. But uh, Cool, go on then. Let's have five minutes on, on different forms of possibility. Yeah. So, so I, I would, I, I, I think there's perhaps epistemic, metaphysical, and logical possibility. And as you've kind of already talked about, you know, the logical possibility is going to be a straight up contradiction. Um, now, I have a difficult, que- a difficult question in metaphysics in terms of like, um, in virtue of what the logical contradictions hold everywhere. That's an, a question I don't really have an answer to. And then there's metaphysical um, possibility, which is sort of you know what what could be the case in possible worlds it's a bit sort of weaker than logical a logical impossibility but it's uh it, it it's not quite like physical possibility um and then ep- epistemic possibility is like something completely different it's like um just stuff that i could conceive like like you know some t- I, I can convince myself that like hesperus and the hesperus and phosphorus aren't the same thing um you know i can think of a and, I, and i'm it's just because i'm just completely off about the facts and you know if i i, I could make an argument about if that if leibniz's law of indiscernibility of identicals that my conception couldn't be that way if they were the same thing but really it's actually my my uh sort of model of how the solar system's working or whatever that's off or some some relevant fact um that's not the case so i, I think i distinguish between them in that way but you said in the book, which I thought was interesting, that there's only really a distinction between like logical and um, was it, or, or did you did you say um, epistemic is logical? I can't remember. You articulate your own position because I'll get it. I'll butcher it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, uh, so I was trying to avoid this in the in Galileo's error. This is you know what I go into in big in a lot of detail in my academic book. Yeah. So basically, I think. There's logical coherence, um, and then there's what remains logically coherent once you know what you're conceiving of. Once you know the essence of what you're conceiving of, so it's like it's it's logically coherent that water is not H two O. But why is that? That's because the the concept water doesn't reveal to you what water essentially is, namely H two O. Um, so, but once you know the essential nature of water, that it's H2O, then of course it ceases to be coherent that, um, right. that, that, that water is not H2O because 
it's part of your conception of the HTO. So I think logical coherence and possibility only come apart when we don't know the essential nature of what we're conceiving of. So once you know, once you know the essential nature of what you're conceiving of, then logical coherence is the same thing as metaphysical possibility, real possibility. So, um, so then the key question, the zombie argument is, when you're thinking of the physical facts and the consciousness facts, are you conceiving of them in terms of their essential nature? So then there's the onus on someone like me to say, I see. I think when you're thinking about it, so then the question is, is the concept of a pain, is that more like the concept of a triangle that, you know, you know, you know what a triangle is just from having the concept, or is it more like water, the concept of water? You don't know what water is. So I want to say the concept of a pain is is more like the logical or mathematical concept that you you know the nature of pain through well when i say the concept i mean when you the concept when you attend to your experience so when i attend to a particular pain i'm having right now i'm thinking about it in terms of how it feels but it just is a feeling and i know how it feels when i attend to it and so I know it's nature. That's that's all. A feeling is just its nature is just how it feels. So I think so. That's I mean that's my in, in my academic book, the more expansive book. You know that we do know the the essential nature of our feelings and experiences, and and when you know the essential nature of of what you're thinking of, logical possibility just is real metaphysical possibility. That's the. That's the that's the argument. I mean, you could have other notions of epistemic possibility that are more narrow, like consistent with what I know or something. Obviously, but um, so yeah, that that's how I think about it. So, so if, I, if I, I just repeat, like this, oh, sorry, you. sorry, if, if, yeah, if yeah. just could you say something, I say something, and then you have the last word. Okay, I I just wanted to make sure that I'd got what you said there there properly by by just briefly repeating it back. So, I think like. I think what, what you described there is, um, so once you're aware of all the relevant facts, which would be the essential nature of the state of affairs that you're conceiving of, um, then um, logical possibility and what you're conceiving of are basically the same thing. Um, and in, I don't know, now there's a difficult question when it comes to most things of how I know that I've got the essential nature of something. But when it comes to my own phenomenal experiences, that's a special case because I'm actually the authority in that case. I, you know, there, there's no other authority over me describing what it's like to be me sort of thing. And so I've got the essential nature in that case. And so I can argue in that way. Is that right? Or may, I, I mean, maybe yeah. we would defend yeah. you. Yeah, that sounds yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And that, um, that's the more controversial bit. I think a lot of physicalists would disagree with that. They, a lot of contemporary philosophical academic physicalists just think, no, you just sort of point. It's like the water concept. When you're thinking about your pain, you just point at something. You don't know what the hell it is. Um, so you don't know its essential nature. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, um, I guess I, personally, I'm, I'm sympathetic towards the view, but I don't, I'm sort of agnostic when it comes to consciousness, but I, I appreciate people like you giving up their time to kind of, um, I don't mean how agnostic as to whether I think it exists or not. I'm pretty committed to it existing. I just don't know what it is or its ultimate nature. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate people like you coming on and sharing their time to discuss these things and also to share it with the audience. And um, if you want to say any, any last words before I end the stream, feel free.
Um, no, I think I think that's all right. My website, philipgoffphilosophy.com, if people want to find out more, or Twitter, philip under slash goff underscore goff. Um, mind chat, the podcast to be. Um, so I've, re- I've really enjoyed this discussion. I don't want to stop actually, but <laughs> yeah, but it's getting it's getting late, and you've got to I look at the sleep and children wake me up <laughs> at four in the morning or something. So. So thank you everyone for watching. I hope you enjoyed it and learned some philosophy and uh, have a good whatever you're going on to do after watching.